This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on February 16th, 2016. I'm Steve Mursky. A small contingent of Scientific American editors was at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which ran from February 10th to February 15th in Washington, D.C. At the end of the day's sessions on February 13th, I met up with Scientific American's Mark Fischetti, Dina Marin, and Seth Fletcher to hear about what they had heard about. It's a huge meeting with sometimes 10 sessions going on at the same time. Each of us could therefore attend only a small fraction of the briefings, So what follows is an admittedly idiosyncratic slice of the science presented at the AAAS conference. Mark Fischetti, what have you come across while you've been here at the conference? Um, Two things have stood out to me. One is about sea level rise. You know, one of the cool things about AAAS conference or any really big science conference is you know, you have these general ideas, and then when you get into the technical sessions, you find out how much more interesting these stories are. So sea level rise, right? It's generally um, rising, and everybody thinks about this as kind of like all the oceans are a bathtub, and so the water is just getting a little higher, right? But it varies a lot around the world. And there's, and, there's, and why is that? Um, when we have tide gauges, and we have other gauges out in the ocean, and we have satellite measurements, which show that you know, this actual measured sea level rise is different quite a lot in different parts of the world. And so there's a few things going on. It's the, the glaciers that are melting, so there's more water entering the ocean. But it's also because the ocean water is heating up, it expands like anything else that heats up. But there's one, one interesting thing, which I really wasn't aware of, as the glaciers get smaller and on Greenland or in Antarctica, they're, they're so large that they actually have a gravitational pull of their own. So near those areas, they pull the ocean water up toward them. So as they get smaller, there's less pull, so they don't pull as much water up towards them. So that water has to go somewhere else. And that is a big factor in where sea level rise is actually higher or less or even going lower around Antarctica, let's say. Wow, and that's measurable. The effect is so big. Yeah, so so the bottom line for the U.S. is that – there are these so-called now hot spots of sea level rise, and one of them, one of the largest around the world, is the east coast of the United States. Well, bully for us. <laughs> so that's that's just kind of the neat stuff you get to, into when you're here. The other issue, um, issue, the other topic that's really been a hot topic today, has been um, this idea that there's a war on science. So there was a big media briefing, and then there's um, a, another session after that. And um, several good people were speaking about, um, well, there was, I'll, I'll tell you who they were, right? So um, we had Steve Strauss, who's um, a biotech guy from Oregon State, was talking about um, a sort of attacks on GMOs, right? And, and the sort Genetically of modified, modified organisms like uh, corn or you know, in some cases, animals. Exactly. And a lot of people want their food to be absolutely pure, whatever that means, and so they don't want GMO foods. But uh, the science is pretty clear that GMO stuff is 
safe to eat. And, and it's, it's all around us already. So, um, but, so he was sort of representing that so-called issue. And then um, there was another person who um, was talking about vaccines. His name was uh, Mark Largent from Michigan State. And, you know, again, there's these pockets of, of um, parents, you know, who don't want their kids vaccinated and they tend to group in, in communities or that, that opinion tends to take over a community. Um, and there was a, another person talking about climate change, and then there was actually a press professor of philosophy, Roberta Milstein from University of California. Uh, so they were all talking about this. Is there actually a war on science? Uh, because in, in these areas, as examples, you know, there's a lot of pushback against science. And um, Mark Largent actually said it best. He said, you know, I don't think there's a war on science at all. If you really think about it, and he's saying you, all you people in the audience, you scientists in the audience, right? If you think about what's actually going on, science has become so dominant in discourse in, in public issues now that people who are against an issue are actually looking for science that they can marshal for their argument against the other side, as it will, right? So the people who are against vaccines, for example, they're saying, well, there's this research that, you know, this supposed research about autism, and so, which was proven wrong, but they're marshalling science to prove their argument. You know, the climate deniers, they have their whole group of their so-called scientists who are creating their so-called data. So he actually made a really interesting point, which was science, you scientists, you guys have the power because the people who are opposing these things are trying to call upon science to make their own argument. So there's not a war on science, there's a war on the findings of science, and the enemy is trying to appear to be as scientific. Exactly. Right. Uh, and the, uh, the, the philosophy uh, professor, Roberta Milstein, was saying the same things. Like, if, if you continue to, say, talk about the war on science, you're actually propping up this distinction that doesn't exist anymore, that science is somehow embattled it's not science is sort of the power to arguments on both sides of issues so so just stop talking about a war in science and show that your science is superior to people who are trying to argue against your findings and that's the way to go about it well that's an interesting distinction that i had not thought about because i am always wandering around under the impression that there is a war on science but it's really a war on the results that the people results don't are, like. are an ideology, you know. I mean, the climate science is pretty clear now that people who are, you know, arguing against it, it's 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 political, it's a political position they're taking, and so it's not it's not it's not a war on science. It's a war exactly on someone who's got <laughs> got the other opinion or results that don't happen to support a position that people already have taken. So, Dina, what about you? What did you happen on that was particularly interesting? Uh, yesterday, I went to a session, a Zika virus update, and the mosquito-borne disease Zika virus is something we've been following pretty closely at Scientific American. Um, but it was interesting to hear a few officials from the World Health Organization and Anthony Fauci, who's the head of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, talk about sort of the latest news that we know and I was surprised how candid they were about what we really don't know so far. Uh, there was news yesterday that came out of the UK that uh, the virus has been found in the semen of a man who had the virus and recovered from it two months ago. Um, and that, of course, is much longer than we anticipated it being removed from the sexual fluids of a man. But we don't really know how long uh, it exists and how long it would continue to also be potentially infectious. Um, and so the World Health Organization official was very candid 
candid that we just don't have that much information yet about that, and those studies are really ongoing. So as far as recommendations about ensuring Zika virus is not sexually transmitted, just the minimal information we have that uh, a man that has traveled to in an area where Zika virus is infected should be wearing a condom when having intercourse with a partner is really what we're knowing right now. What I found interesting as well is I asked Christopher Dickey, who's the head of the World Health Organization's, uh, he's director of strategy at the World Health Organization, uh, and I asked him when we should expect to have more solid links linking Zika virus and microcephaly, that's the birth defect uh, where a child is born with an abnormally small head, uh, and he says that we're not really expecting an, uh, an aha moment, that it's really just about accumulating evidence. And similarly, uh, Zika virus has been linked with an autoimmune disease called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, it's an autoimmune disease that can lead to paralysis, and we do not have a, a way to prevent that. This is a very tense situation right now, and the World Health Organization has declared this a public health emergency of international concern. And so they're trying to marshal their resources um, and their scientists to make sure that we're acting quickly. So for adults, the issue if you get a Zika infection is Guillain-Barre, where you're, you're basically locked in. Your body is completely immobilized. Usually, for Guillain-Barre, I think it's usually for about a year before you start to recover movement. And then uh, the danger if a woman is pregnant when she's infected is that the baby could be born with the microencephaly. Um, but do we know what the incidence of actual disease is versus infection? I mean, not just because you have an infection doesn't mean you're going to get either of these conditions. That's correct. Yeah, we don't have numbers on either of those yet, and that's something that they are trying to find out in their ongoing studies. Uh, what's interesting is with both of these conditions, we have seen them linked to other maladies. Uh, for example, with Guillain-Barre uh, syndrome. This is something that happens typically after infections. Um, so this is not the only, Zika virus is not the only infectious situation where you would expect uh, this kind of outcome. And similarly with microcephaly, we know that uh, women who've experienced rubella or herpes during pregnancy or were exposed to toxic substances, their children also might have microcephaly. But we don't know how common this is uh, right now. Something that's raised eyebrows is in terms of how many microcephaly incidents have been linked to Zika virus. Uh, though Brazil has said there's been more than 4,000 incidents so far, only a handful of those have been laboratory confirmed, meaning only a handful of those infants had samples sent to the laboratory, and indeed Zika virus was present in their system. And as far as Zika virus that spread to other countries, including El Salvador and Colombia, uh, primarily we have not seen these increases in microcephaly as of yet. Uh, but the head of CDC, that's the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, says that's not particularly surprising because we're talking about a long timeline here between when, for example, if a woman encountered Zika virus in the first trimester of pregnancy, and obviously nine months later, uh, she'll well, not nine months later, pardon me, six months later, perhaps she would have this child, and that's when we would be looking at measuring the circumference of this baby's head and diagnosing microcephaly. People are at the very beginning of trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, exactly. So we don't have the benefit of much information until 2007, when there was the first large outbreak in Yap Island in Micronesia. There were perhaps 14 cases that were documented in the peer-reviewed literature of Zika virus at all. So that really underscores how little we know. And as far as even uh, monies that were being put towards uh, vaccine or diagnostic development here, uh, 
Anthony Fauci, again, the head of NIAID, says we can't even put a figure on how much has been spent towards that. As the Zika virus is relatively mild, causes for many people, no symptoms, but for some people can cause just a week of flu-like symptoms. Um, so while we have put millions or perhaps by this point billions of dollars into research for flaviviruses in general, of which uh, Zika virus is one, we haven't had any dedicated efforts. So this is probably a story that we're going to be following for years. Potentially, yes. This doesn't look like it's something that's going away. And uh, we're certainly expecting the number of Zika virus cases to heat up this summer uh, when the weather is warmer, meaning more mosquitoes will be out, but more people will be outside as well. So, Seth, what did you happen on here that you found particularly interesting so far? Yesterday morning, I went to see Gabriela Gonzalez, who is the spokesperson for LIGO, uh, talk about the discovery of gravitational waves. And that was a really interesting moment because the discovery had been announced the day before. Uh, she didn't tell us much that we didn't already know, but she was just glowing and she was treated as a rock star. And she played the sound of the black hole chirp uh, on a loop. And she, uh, there was a moment where she got kind of wistful and I, I think she choked up a little bit. And then everybody applauded, and it was really nice. And then afterward, there were all these young women scientists coming up and taking selfies with her and, like, trailing her around. So it was pretty awesome. It was a nice moment. And then uh, this afternoon, I went to a really interesting talk on AI and consciousness. And the first speaker was Demis Hassabas, who is uh, with Google DeepMind. And they are the people who built the AI that uh, could teach itself to play vintage Atari games and beat human opponents. And that research was announced last year. And I had read quite a bit about it, but I hadn't seen the video of the computer actually playing the games. And it was spooky and really cool. I mean, because it just, it, it started out with game one, uh, you know, completely incompetent. And then by game 100 was getting the hang of it. And by game 300 was just superhuman in its abilities. It was amazing. Uh, for those of us of a certain age, what do you remember what uh, specific Atari games? Yeah, uh, Space Invaders was the first one. Uh, and there was another one I can't remember the name of, but it involved, you know, you have the paddle thing that you move around on the bottom of the screen and you bounce the ball up to break the blocks and you have to right. break all the blocks. Block breaker, I think. It's it was. something like that. But... Uh, that was really cool. And, and what they're gearing up for now is to put this AI, a, a new AI called AlphaGo, which is an artificially intelligent Go player uh, in competition with a professional Go grandmaster in Korea in a couple months. And that will be very interesting. And Go has been a real challenge. I mean, it's much more difficult to program a computer to beat a, a Go champion than it is to program a computer to beat a, even a world chess champion. That's right, because the game is tremendously complicated, much more so than chess. I think it's something like 10 to the 170 possible board configurations, which is more, there, there are not that many atoms in the universe. And it's been a longstanding challenge. And uh, Hasaba said that this advance came about a decade earlier than experts in the field had predicted. So it's really interesting. Uh, this deep learning AI research is really accelerating and really cool and 
interesting ways. Uh, you know, and, and he actually mentioned that there are ethical implications for this, that he doesn't think that a, a human level general AI will come along for decades still, but we need to start talking now about what to do when that happens. And he seems to think that it, it will happen. So it was that that was another highlight. So the Skynet development is 10 years ahead of schedule. Basically, yeah. I, I saw Skynet play Atari today. And yeah, there was a sense of it. There was a little sense of it, you know, like I was seeing the first frames in a the intro montage for some sci-fi movie <laughs> about robots taking over the world. Uh, but it's just, it was so impressive. You know, you couldn't help but marvel at it and think, I really hope that we put these things to good use. For more about the gravitational waves finding, listen to astrophysicist and LIGOS co-founder Kip Thorne talk with Scientific American's Josh Fishman on the previous episode of the Science Talk podcast. And you can read Robin Lloyd's coverage of the War on Science issue that Mark Fischetti mentioned at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can get a whole bunch more of the latest news about science. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For a Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Mm-hmm.